I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This is a special crossover episode between The Truth of the Matter and the Common Health podcast that I host with Dr. Steve Morrison of CSIS. In this conversation, I have Steve and Michaela Semino of CSIS on to talk about their new report, really interesting report called The Worst is Over, Now What? Pertaining to the COVID-19 battle and where do we go from here? Steve, Michaela, this is a really tremendous report. You can even listen to an audio brief about it on our website. You can find it at CSIS.org. It's on the homepage right now. But let me ask you, Steve, after three years, the COVID-19 health emergency seems to be over and it places the world in a post-COVID era. So where does that leave us and what happens now? Well, I'll, I'll say a few words about the big frame for the paper, then I think Michaela should jump in. And, you know, we focus ultimately in this paper on five steps that U.S. policymakers should be taking at a senior level in order to push forward and not resign ourselves to excessive pessimism. We'll talk about what those five steps are going to be, but we make a case that we are in the midst of a very, very troubled period in our societal history. And it's bigger than just America. It's a, it's a larger thing. Money has run out. We're in the cycle of crisis followed by neglect. The pandemic end of the emergency has led to a psychological a kind of amnesia, people turning away. We're seeing worsening of partisan polarization afterwards. We're seeing the collapse of trust. We're seeing a great gap between the North and the South. When you look at the Hill, you see a kind of retribution, a kind of grievance-based, very negative phenomenon. And that, when you add all of those things together, it's a pretty strong formula for pessimism. So we're admitting that up front and then saying, but there are many other factors that should give us hope and optimism. And that's where I'm going to kick it over to Michaela to kind of walk us through, Michaela, like what's the argument against this powerful push towards pessimism for why we should be looking in a very pragmatic way with optimism and hope? Well, I think like you say, Steve, most Americans feel like we're living in a post-COVID moment. And I think for most of us on the day-to-day, how we live our lives looks a lot more like it did in 2019 than it did in 2020, 2021, 2022. But as folks are following the news, they know that COVID is still a problem that we're grappling with and that public health experts are dealing with. We have new vaccines, hopefully, that will come forward in late September, early October that are targeting some Omicron variants. We know there's other variants that scientists are watching to make sure they don't become more concerning So all of that movement is still happening and public health experts are still very much focused on COVID. And I think that scientific momentum and the memory of what we've just experienced preventing it from happening again and some of the great advances that came out of that experience in terms of scientific innovation that's been pushed forward, new technology platforms like for mRNA vaccines that we didn't have pre-COVID, These forces are pushing us towards greater engagement and pushing U.S. policymakers towards greater engagement 
On the international side, we have geopolitical concerns and, as you mentioned, tensions between the global north and south over improving equity of access when there's a pandemic emergency like COVID that comes to the fore. So all of these factors are have already started these conversations that are happening both domestically within the administration and between the administration and Congress, and then internationally between states with the World Health Organization about what can we do better. So I don't think that the moment has closed quite yet for us to make progress. And that's the argument we're laying out in the report is that these processes and there there is movement happening and we need to really lean into that rather than sitting back on our heels in this pessimistic posture. Andrew, let me add a couple of points to what Michaela just said. In this piece, we point to recent survey data that shows that Americans overwhelmingly support the U.S. government in continuing to invest at a robust level, both domestically and internationally, in building protections against future pandemics. American public has not turned away to the degree that many of us believe they have. Quite the contrary. But you wouldn't know it from looking at what Congress is doing. Right, right. So the American people, survey work is showing, want to see a bipartisan approach that's forward-looking, that's investing in situational awareness so we can see zoological spillovers early. They want to see greater technology developed. Operation Warp Speed had a profound impact on people. It's a Trump initiative with very strong support from, from Congress, $18 billion investment with industry at the table, with DOD at the table. It was you know, in this age of the Oppenheimer movie, I mean, we have our experience here that gave people an enormous boost of confidence around technology. We also see when we listen to people in Congress and elsewhere, they may be talking past one another and engaging in lots of retribution narratives, but there's a consensus that we need to invest more in biosafety and biosecurity, technology, and we need to protect Americans and move ahead here. So that's another set of factors that give us a lot of hope. And the other things I point to is we have fresh leadership within this administration. Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, Rochelle Walensky, Ashish Jha, they're all gone. The emergency is over. But look at what we have now. We have a new Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response at the White House, led by General Paul Friedrichs. We have new leadership, the majority of women at the newly created ARPA-H at HHS, which is meant to be like DARPA, experimental and bold. We have new leadership at coming in to head NIH and coming in to head the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases that Tony Fauci led for 37 years. We have two women, two very prominent individuals nominated for that. We have the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, now led by a very dynamic woman. So we have fresh leadership. We have Mandy Cohen at CDC. Look at that. And then we have major efforts to upgrade our institutions. We now have a new bureau at the Department of State, Global Health Security and Diplomacy. We have CDC under Manny Cohen carrying forward what Rochelle started in terms of the reform there. We have General Friedrichs creating a new facility at the White House. So you add those things together, it's, it's a strong case for, for really believing that it's still quite possible to move things forward. So... The American people are very much for this, as the survey data tells us. And what you're saying is, is we are, if not prepared for the next pandemic now or the next bio disaster now, we're certainly on the way. Is that what you're saying? 
I'm saying that we have a lot of work to do, and there needs to be a determination by U.S. leadership in the executive and Congress to continue to push forward with these five steps that we lay out. But it's not inconceivable. In other words, a lot of people are saying, oh, we're so partisan and divided. It's so toxic. Nothing is going to be possible. It's fiscal scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. We're saying, of course, those things are realities, but beneath those realities are these other things that we've been talking about that give us hope that people will come around. It's a matter of U.S. national interest that we move ahead in these areas. And people acknowledge that. The one thing we haven't also emphasized is the geopolitical competition with China and Russia has elevated the power of our alliances with the G7, our alliances in Asia. It's generated all this new content foreign policy, national security doctrines that elevate health security as an element. So let me ask both of you, though, along these lines, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how public health has been caught up in a wider partisan division across the country. How can U.S. leaders work together to restore trust in public health? Well, I think the basic premise that we lay out in the report is that Ultimately, the trust that the American people have in our public health institutions is predicated on how well those institutions perform. And so throughout the response to COVID, when we were trying to weave our way and craft new policies as we were learning more about the virus and trying to develop this novel response, that meant that sometimes we got things wrong and sometimes guidance changed. And if it wasn't perfectly transparent how that was communicated to the American people, that caused a loss in trust because folks said, well, we don't quite understand. You just said this one thing and now you're saying something else. What do we believe? So that's one piece of it is reforming this relationship between institutions and the American people and how you get that information out to the American people. So it's making sure that agencies have much stronger communications capacities and especially digital communications capacities. A lot of people get their information online. They get it from social media platforms, making sure institutions are up to date and actively reaching out to folks in the spaces where they already are day to day, rather than having the onus be on the American people to reach out and find those sources of information. That'll help make sure that misinformation doesn't crowd in so much. And then it's a balance of ensuring that as you're working on those communications capabilities, you're maintaining these linkages that have that have been built up between these federal institutions and state and local capacity and community leaders, a lot of which became formalized in a much more concrete way over the pandemic and making sure those keep forward so we don't have to build everything from scratch. Well, that's encouraging. But I want to take a pessimistic standpoint here because we one of the things we've been talking about on this podcast forever is that it is really hard to communicate COVID policy and health policy. It's really hard, like you said, with all the misinformation, disinformation that's out there. So I want to ask you, Steve, with Ashish Jha gone, and he was somebody who really harnessed communication for the administration very well. Uh, he'd been on this podcast a number of times. He's somebody who really communicates health policy well. With him gone, and we don't know who's, I don't know who's replacing him yet. Well, in effect, General Friedrichs. Okay, so General Friedrichs is going to, in effect, replace him. But what does this do to the communication policy of the Biden administration? And what are they going to do to make sure 
that the American people are understanding what we're trying to do here? We're calling for a couple of things to happen. One is for the senior leadership in this administration to admit, to acknowledge openly and overtly that restoration of trust has to be the lead item in their strategy. They have to state that. And then secondly, there has to be a change in leadership style. There needs to be more humility and introspection. We need to admit mistakes. We need to admit the many missteps that happened in this period. We need to try and move beyond the partisan toxicity by having a different kind of dialogue happen that's less defensive, more introspective, more open to acknowledging what we just went through. That's very important. And we need to very much state that we need new innovative partnerships that cut across the political divide if we're going to restore trust. So that's political leadership, acknowledgement at the top levels that trust has to be brought back. And the third is modernizing communications, getting digital competency, getting political acumen and digital competency, which is missing in our government. The forces of falsehood and conspiracy thinking are winning. We do not communicate to American people in the digital space that they occupy, that they inhabit. We do not do that. We do not have the capacity. Now, one thing I do want to admit here in terms of being a skeptic is it's really difficult for federal agencies to step forward and lead on this. Let me give you an example. NIH just recently put together a proposal embraced by all 27 institutes of the National Institutes of Health, calling for $150 million communications upgrade, modernization, in order to restore faith in science and reach people in the digital space that they inhabit. And they were unified. The leadership across the institutes unified in this is the next important step in modernizing communications capacities. And $150 million is not a lot for no, that. No, this I'm... is a baby step in yeah. a way but it got shot down on the hill. That, that brings us to the reality that one person's misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracy thinking is another person's legitimate retribution narrative about how the government abused its power and the like. And of course, in the emerging narrative that we see up on the hill in certain quarters, it goes along the lines that NIH deliberately misled, misrepresented, partnered with Echo Health Alliance and the Chinese government in Wuhan, et cetera, et cetera. And this feeds into, this is a kind of Benghazi style thing that's feeding into the electoral cycle and the like. So beating back on that, you immediately are inviting a lot of artillery to come in at you from those very forces that are, that are propagating falsehoods. You have to have some cover and some determination to move ahead. There's been various efforts that have been false starts within our government to do this where they just get blown back. So you got to figure out how to really modernize your communications while taking a lot of criticism in this period. Okay. So a lot of us who communicate for a living have some ideas about how we could do that. There's no shortage of ideas. There's a lot of information out there about misinformation and disinformation, but are we just banging our heads against the wall if we can't agree on even $150 million to modernize communications in, at NIH? I think it's a real challenge. And I think this is one of the areas where we're going to come against the hardest ceiling 
in terms of some of the caps that have been put on spending over the next couple of years after the debt deal and the rescission of COVID funding, there's not a lot of extra flexibility to put towards these efforts. I think one of the things that we're really encouraged by is some of these new leaders who have stepped into administrative positions have taken a stance sort of like Ashisha in being very proactive in how they communicate. Mandy Cohen did a tremendous job in North Carolina in the way that she was able to reach across party lines and bring everyone on board as she was moving along. And I think particularly for CDC, having this kind of hard break from her tenure, from Rochelle Walensky's tenure, she's able to carry forward some of the work that they were already doing to reform the agency, but with her own spin on things. Yeah, I think some of this is personality and experience and getting the right people in the jobs who are very expert in communications. I think Manny Cohen is as good as Ashish Shah, and Ashish Shah is excellent. I think General Friedrichs is excellent. These are people that the public will not see. This is a next generation of leadership that doesn't carry the burden of the pandemic acute phase, right? I mean, Rochelle got beaten up, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, they all got beaten up right? And got pulled into this vortex of polarization. We have new leaders coming in that are not carrying that same burden. And, and they're highly skilled communicators. The other thing is that these institutions have no choice but to modernize. They have to come to terms with understanding digital platforms and in, how they're engineered. They have to strike new partnerships with private sector media firms and the like. They need to invest in survey work at a much higher level so they understand what's in people's heads and they need to intensify their points of contact with people. Yeah, they need to talk to the American people. There's they no doubt about that. They need to get out there that. and invest at a much higher level. They need much higher competencies in their communications outfits, right? But they also have to be out there listening. A style of leadership that is more humble, that is more engaged, that is there all the time. And I think we've seen proof of that what Michaela was referencing in terms of Manny Cohen, and it's not just Manny Cohen. I think you can point that General Friedrichs has been hugely successful in his communications and engagement with a broad spectrum of folks through his military career, his 37-year military career, being on the joint staff. You know, these folks are bringing, and that's just two cases. I think there are more out there. But we're going to really need to get creative here because, you know, think about it. After 9-11, there was a post-9-11 commission. We don't have that. We can't get a bipartisan 9-11 style commission to study what the next pandemic lessons should be. And, you know, if you ask the American people after 9-11, should there be funding to prevent the next attack? The answer overwhelmingly would be yes. You're saying you have survey research here that shows the American people are saying yes again. So there's a disconnect here right. in how we, you know, we're going to have to really get creative. Agencies are going to have to stay out of the political fray to make sure that they're yeah, And we need to tell the stories of what's happened in America. I mean, look, the 10 top performing states in the United States during the pandemic, half of them were run by Republican governors. Half of them were run by Democratic governors. The work that Tom Boyke did with his partners in this elaborate study that was done of, of all of the states in America brought us brought across that we have leadership that are in purple, red, and blue states that are high-performing who knew how to communicate, knew how to connect to their populations, and it wasn't partisan-based. Well, I just think back to Indiana, one of the reddest states in the country, one of the best pandemic communicators. Right. 
So, so there are lessons there. And I think part of that is you bring to the surface what those positive lessons are. What were the innovations? What were the fusion centers? Who were the governors? Who were the great innovators who moved out and did things in a, in a, in a really serious way? I think we need to be realistic, right? We need to be incrementalists. We need to, this isn't a problem that gets fixed overnight. This is a problem that gets fixed through a kind of sober, determined realism that sees the incremental gains and sets the sights and tries to get to a, a different dialogue. On a sustained basis, that's no question about it. Let's talk about some of the other pathways that you guys have laid out for the U.S. government and leaders to move the policy process forward in a productive way. Congress, for instance, has been debating the reform of a few foundational pieces of global health legislation, while the Biden administration has been issuing a succession of policy documents on biodefense and the bioeconomy. How do these pieces fit together, Michaela? Sure. Well, starting with the second part there, I think that a lot of the new doctrines that have come out on biodefense and the bioeconomy, we have a new national biodefense strategy and implementation plan that came out, new executive orders on the bioeconomy. And this is the real result of, I think, the how geopolitical competition is underlying all of these dialogues. And these strategies put a focus on how that competition is playing out in the pandemic security space and what we need to do about that, whether it's better protecting supply chains for critical drugs and what those are and what those steps might look like and how we need to work better with private sector partners, with international partners. This lays out a framework for doing that. It puts it squarely within this national security frame and it tells the agencies how they need to work together, who's in charge and I think more work needs to be done to make all of that clear as these strategies move forward. On the congressional side, these pieces of legislation are, I think, where we've been a little bit more concerned. These are both PAPA and PEPFAR legislation has been around for several decades. It's foundational pieces of how the U.S. addresses public health, how it organizes all of its activities overseas. We've seen some movement on the PAPA side recently. We have bills that have moved forward subcommittees in the House and the Senate, but they're not close together. There's a lot more negotiating that needs to be done. And there's not, frankly, a lot of time in the congressional calendar left to do that once we come back from the August recess. And Steve, I don't know if you want to speak to the PEPFAR debate, but that's been, I think, escalated to a, a different level of concern. I mean, Congress has these frameworks, these Decade, two decade long frameworks for the president's emergency plan on AIDS relief and the pandemic all hazards protection act, PAPA and PEPFAR. Both of those are terribly important in terms of reauthorization. PEPFAR will we'll learn more this week, but certainly the, in the post Dobbs decision era, abortion politics is, is washing over many of these. We saw this with the national defense authorization act. We're seeing this now with PEPFAR where allegations are coming forward that PEPFAR supports, endorses, and advances abortion, which is inaccurate, but in this current environment, it can be uh, disabling. And so will PEPFAR get it, get it or not? And we can have a separate conversation about PEPFAR reauthorization because it's fairly complicated. But these are very, very important things to happen. We also need to just remind ourselves, the Global Fund PEPFAR, Gavi Alliance, the Vaccine Alliance, these are instruments created with bipartisan support two decades ago that continue to perform at high levels. And putting a spotlight back on them is a very important way of rebuilding confidence and rebuilding bipartisan support. On the 
doctrine issue. We have all of this proliferation of security content that makes the case that it's U.S. national interest to be protecting Americans better against biological threats. Those doctrines are what sets the rules for how our agencies, how the different far-flung entities within DOD are supposed to be held to account, how our other agencies are supposed to be held to account. It's how they are hardwired to be accountable in promoting health security. So we're making the case that these are not just trivial developments, these new security doctrines and strategies. These are not trivial at all. These are setting the rules by which our government is hardwired and held to account, and we should be trying to push to get the best results possible from those because there's, there's momentum, it's moving ahead, that process is the wheels of government turning. All right. I want to ask both of you how the U.S. can accelerate biotech to help prevent another pandemic of this scale. Sure. I think on the biotech side, there's, there's a few different pieces of this. One is what Steve was already mentioning around Operation Warp Speed and the tremendous achievement that came out of that and the investment that was made to continue that program through the Biden administration has just led to this continuing kind of chain of research and development in new technologies like the mRNA vaccine platform, but like new vaccines to have nasal vaccines rather than vaccines that you get delivered by a shot that are continuing to move along and will be really important as we look across not just COVID, but all sorts of different viral families that could be pandemic threats in the future. And so Building on the lessons of COVID is one piece. I think on the other side of it, we are very closely watching the development of new technologies like AI or like synthetic biology, or there's new platforms that are going to be operational just in the next couple of years where you can do tabletop DNA synthesis in labs. All of these tools are going to make it a lot easier for folks with much lower skill level to be performing this advanced biological research. And so on one hand, that's exciting. It means that there's a lot more folks that you have contributing to potential advances in tools that'll make us safer against new biological threats. But there's also concerns with that. We don't have really strong rules around biosafety and biosecurity, especially that are agreed upon on the international scale. And so as you have this technology moving forward really quickly, our policies to have oversight over that aren't really keeping pace. And so that creates a lot of potential for misuse, whether it's a lab accident or whether it's a deliberate bad actor that we're really watching out for. So we make the argument in our paper that we need to be pushing this technology along and building on all of that progress that's been made while keeping this bug in the back of our heads about we need to be having serious conversations about what this means and have those conversations really quickly. So along these same lines, and we haven't only, we've only touched on this a bit so far, Let's talk about international. We know that pandemic security is not just about protecting Americans at home, but it requires preventing outbreaks at any source and improving the health of people worldwide. So how can the United States use its diplomatic strength to bring global powers together before the next crisis? Well, first of all, we have new capabilities. August 1st, we just launched a new bureau at the Department of State on global health security and diplomacy led by now Assistant Secretary John Nkankazong. So we've, we've built on top, we've elevated the PEPFAR platform, the Office of Global AIDS Coordinator. We've added in the global health security. This process took quite a long time to, to negotiate through and 
work out how this was all going to happen. But now we've got the State Department invested in a new bureau in leading the way on global health security. That's a big achievement. That's That gives us new capability. We now have a new office at the White House led by General Friedrichs on White House Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response, mandated by Senator Murray and and then Senator Burr with support across the aisle in the House as well, which is now coming into its own. So we also have, you know, we've seen the G7 alliance go from a relatively weak status to an enormously dynamic and powerful entity in the face of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is elevating our focus on health security. Look at the G7 communique from Hiroshima back in May. It's also translating into stronger alliances in Asia, which are driven by the need for the U.S. to invest much higher levels with Korea, Australia, Japan, India, with health security as a dimension of that. And the geopolitical competition with China and Russia are a big factor here driving our diplomacy. And we have a greater capacity to do that now. And there are opportunities that are there in terms of the pandemic treaty negotiations that are underway right now, the international negotiating body under the, that's underway, the U.S. is part of that. There's negotiations on reform of the international health regulations that are very, very important. And the other things that we're saying here is that we need to finally crack the nut on where is climate change in our health security strategy. Michaela can say more about that. And we're also saying we have no choice but to re-engage China directly at senior levels about health security and preparing for the next big dangerous biological event. We are not doing that today. And that's dangerous and it's not in our self-interest. Engaging China is the big one. That and moving finally to acknowledge that climate has got to be introduced as a component element of our global health strategy. It is absent right now. And yet, Climate is destroying livelihoods. It's destroying health capabilities. It is reversing the gains that have been made in health in low and middle income countries in particular. And we don't have a strategy for this. Michaela, I want to give you the last word on this before we wrap up. Sure. Well, I think they're interrelated, right? We have July was the hottest month on record, and that's not just in the United States. That's around the world. We have places all over the globe that are slowly inching past this 1.5 degree Celsius band that we've put on as this red line. And we know that even if the U.S. has this bigger tent of allies that we bring together through the pandemic accord negotiations or these new financial instruments, just having some folks at the table isn't going to be enough to solve these really massive looming challenges like climate change. So that's where the, I think, the biggest drive to pull these competitors like China back into the table is because we know these transnational massive global threats like health and climate, like pandemics, we need to have all of these folks at the table. We saw during the COVID response that not having China at the table and not having a productive, transparent, communicative relationship between the U.S. and China so hurt our response and has kept us, I think, in a lot of ways stuck in this retrospective debate versus being able to move forward if we work together from the get-go. And as Steve said, climate change is happening now. It's not a reality that we can divorce from our health policy any longer, whether you're looking at extreme heat or you're looking at this shock from extreme weather events. 
It's making all of the routine health challenges we deal with worse, and it's going to escalate things like zoonotic spillover and some of the threats for unknown pandemics we could face in the future. The report is called The Worst is Over. Now what? It is available at CSIS.org. You can listen to this wherever you get your podcasts, of course. Thanks to both of you for a really, really terrific, engaging discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 